And immediately he's, he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you help us today, that you would restore the joy of salvation that the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would heal souls, that you would bring to the mind and heart unconfessed sin, that it might be confessed and forsaken. We pray that men and women here that are not yet children of God would run, would fly to the cross of Jesus and be saved today. Lord, strengthen your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. We're still in chapter 1. This is written by a man named John Mark. John Mark is a masterful storyteller. He moves us along in the Gospel of Mark at a breakneck pace, prodding us forward with the word immediately, over and over, keeping us on the move. It's good to be on the move so you can stay interested in a story. He knows that. John Mark keeps us captivated by the man standing in the middle. His name is Jesus. But as fast as he moves us throughout this gospel, and it is the shortest gospel, it reads the quickest if you compare them with the other three. As fast as he moves us throughout this gospel, there are on either ends of the gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 15, they are, there are times when he slows way down. And let's us see a day in the life of the Savior. One such day is at the very end. There are only two of them in this book. One such day is at the very end in chapter 15. It's the last Friday. It's what we call Good Friday. Begins early in the morning and Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. You know that name. Everybody knows that name. Pilate is a great politician and a bad ruler. He knows that Jesus doesn't deserve to die, but he also knows it'll cost him his career, so he makes the expedient choice. He releases a crook named Barabbas, and Barabbas would be the very first person that Jesus will be the substitute for. We are all here, Barabbas. That morning, the Friday morning, Pilate turns him over to the guards. Jesus is scourged. That means that with a bullwhip, he's whipped. The battalion, the Roman battalion, we find out as the hours go on in that day, the Roman battalion uh, want to have a little fun. They are stuck in the Judean desert. They've got this self-proclaimed Messiah, so they put a crown on him, cover him in a purple robe and they mock worship him they beat him and spit on him 
As the sun rises in the sky, they finally get done with their play and go ahead and crucify him. To get to the, to get to the place where you're going to be crucified, they made him carry his own beam, his own cross, but after that whipping, physically he's depleted. They pull a man out of the crowd. We know him as Simon as Cyrene. He's there visiting. He has his two sons with him, Alexander and Rufus. Simon of Cyrene with the strangest privilege, the darkest privilege any man has ever known. They took him to the cross and there they crucified him at Golgotha, we call it. Between two criminals, you know the story. And, and as he breathed his last, the the curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from everyday life was split from top to bottom, gaining us access to God. The centurion standing there, the Roman soldier, when he saw Jesus die, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. The sun goes down on a day. That's one day. That's the day that frees us. But before we get to that day, we deal with another full day in chapter 1. It started in verse 21. It's the Sabbath day. It started early that morning. It'll run all the way to verse 34 when the sun goes down on that Sabbath day. And in this one day, chapter 1, I want you to see the, the compassion and the patience of the living Lord Jesus, we see that as we walk through it. Now look, whatever notions you have about Jesus, maybe you're not a Christian. Whatever notions you have about Jesus, let's, let's press them to the side now and let's open up the Bible and see what does it say. We get a rare look into the life of Jesus and especially a day in the life of Jesus. And I hope that you'll see that Jesus is a compassionate and patient Savior. I want you to feel that joy. I want you to rejoice in Him. In fact, I'll use that to, to look at these two scenes. Let's go to the first one. First point is, number one, I want you to rejoice in the clear compassion of Jesus. The clear compassion of Jesus. Now, where are we? Let's get us in, into some context here. We are right in the middle of a story. We've just come off a great time at the synagogue. It is a, it is a dynamic story, a demon being cast out of, at the synagogue. It was dramatic. It was powerful. It was public. And in verse 29, church service is over. Synagogue is closed. Verse 29, we pick it up. We join the five men as they leave the synagogue. Join me there. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Five of them walking away several hundred yards from the synagogue in Capernaum to what is known as Peter's house. There is really good reason to believe, I've been there, that the spot they claim is Peter's house is actually his house. There was a church there in the 6th century. They excavated that church, went all the way down to the 1st century level. There they found a dwelling with Christian graffiti. And from that time forward, it has been known as Peter's house. They walked there that day, the five of them, being a picture for us, a picture of fellowship. We won't stay here long, but it's just a reminder that we need people in our lives. 
We are reminded here the four men surrounding Jesus, they will be the core. There'll be others that join. There'll be 12 of them at last. And the need for discipleship, the need for actually investing in one another's lives, the way these men became followers of Jesus is that they lived with him. They go to Peter's house. We know him as Simon here, but his name will be changed to Peter. They go to Peter's house, Peter and Andrew, brothers living in the same house, and that house opened up. Here is a reminder of hospitality. Simon lived there with his brother Andrew. Verse 30, we find out something interesting that's worth at least looking at as we fly by it. That is that Simon is married. Which is interesting because if you are not a Protestant and you are a Catholic, then you understand that priests cannot be married, that a pope cannot be married, that the pope is actually supposed to be the seat of Peter. Peter is the very first pope, they claim. Well, now you've got a problem because Peter is married. Worth noting, let's not stay there, keep moving. <laughs> verse 30, you come to verse 30, you come to the first crisis in this two-part passage. Let's look at the crisis, verse 30. What is the crisis? Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. You would read it like this. She was laid low with a fever. That word fever is the word pyro. It's hot. She's burning up. Now, we don't know much about this, except in that day and time, if you had a fever, it probably was accompanied by some other disease. Now, a fever can be lots of things. It could be some sort of low-grade fever. If you're a kid and you don't want to go to school and you might have a touch of a fever, you're trying to get out of going to school and finding a way and the thermometer, put it in your mouth and you pull it out and warm it up, Close to a heater, you run that up so it's 115 degrees. <laughs> that, that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. It seems to be that there are five people in her house. She would normally be fixing everything for them to eat, and she is so sick that she's laid low with a fever. Now notice what they do. Verse 30 tells us, <clears throat> Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, here's intercession, brothers and sisters. Here's what we do. Immediately, they told him about her. Here's the forgotten giant first step in a crisis. They told Jesus about her. This is what we do as believers. We run to Jesus. Do you know what prayer is? It's you taking your concern to Jesus. When you're thinking about prayer, let's not make it something you just pass by, but something you see as the only avenue that is going to bring about the desired results. Prayer, you ought to, you ought to write it down. I think you ought to write down your prayers. It helps you think it through. I think you ought to think through what is it that you're asking actually asking God to do. I think that you ought to think it through clearly. I think you ought to express it fully in as many ways as you possibly can to get to the actual crisis. And then once you do that, I think you've got to trust Jesus and leave it there with Him. Leave it in the hands of the living Lord Jesus. Who then? Who? Who? 
Maybe you should think while I'm preaching, somebody, you need to write down, who are you asking Jesus for? What are you asking Jesus to do? Some of you, you could, you, some of you very easily answered that. You listed who you got, and you could say, this is what I'm asking. Your problem is not asking. You're doing a lot of that. Do you trust his handling of it? As that roll around, let's go to the miracle. It is a miracle in verse 31. Verse 31 describes for us the shortest miracle in the book of Mark. Jesus doesn't even speak in this miracle. The last miracle over in the synagogue, if you were here last week, he threw the, the demons out and told them to be quiet. That miracle was public. It was, it was dynamic. It was spectacular. That's the Jesus we like. But sometimes, sometimes it's private and personal. I want you to see in verse 31 the tenderness of Jesus, the the, the sympathy of Jesus, the nearness of Jesus, the compassion, that doesn't in any way lessen the actual power of Jesus. Verse 31, you're going to see this instantaneous miracle. It happens at the touch of Jesus. Let's, let's read through it. Let's read it and, and talk through it. Verse 31 tells us <clears throat> that he, he came there. Jesus came. They asked, He came. Jesus is near. If you don't feel like you're close to God, God is not the one who's moved away. He's there. He's, he's near now. The assembled body of believers, people here filled with the Holy Spirit, singing unto the Lord with the Bible open, saying prayers. He's near. The text says in verse 31 that he came and then he took her by the hand. Don't rush by that. What a kind and merciful gesture for the living Lord Jesus to do. So often in Mark's gospel, because Mark got his information from Peter, Peter was there so many times. So often Mark gives us the, the picture of Jesus touching the untouchable, the heart the hurting and the suffering. Later on in this chapter, in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, there is a leper who needs to be healed. And Mark tells us that moved with pity, he, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him, became clean. You get to Mark chapter 5 and he's on the way to Jairus' house. And on the way there, there's that woman that has had this issue of blood for 12 years. The doctors have made it so that her life has been just one living hell. Jesus passes by and she just puts her hand. She touches. Jesus gets to Jairus' house and there is Jairus' daughter. She is dead. Chapter 5, verse 41 and 42, the text says that Jesus took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. Mark chapter 7, he's approached by a deaf man who's not only deaf, also has a speech impediment. Mark tells it like this in verse 32. They brought to him a man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. They begged him for him to lay his hands on this man. 
Jesus put his fingers in the man's ears and he spit on his hands and put it on the man's tongue and said, be opened. Jesus touched. Back to the story, in verse 31, he touched her, took her by the hand, and the text says that he lifted her up. There you have his compassionate power. Your, your Bible might say he raised her up. There becomes the template and the picture of what Jesus does for us when our faith is in Christ, raises us up. There you see the compassionate power of Jesus. He hasn't said a word yet. The text says in verse 31, when he did that, the, the, the fever left her, look at it, she got up and served them. Now pay attention to this kind of healing. She is fully healed. She didn't need time to recover. Look, if you had the flu or if you had COVID real bad, when the fever left, you still had a couple of days. You wanted to lay around a little bit. The text here says that she got up, she, she's healed instantaneously, miraculously, and she got up and served them. Now, there's not a microwave in Peter's house. There was work she had to do. What you have here uh, in this story, what you have here in this story of healing is actually the framework, a framework of the gospel. Let's use this verse as a framework. Let's go back to it and see it. I have a couple of uh, young men here at our church that I think are called to ministry. And uh, each week I send them the text. I'll, I'll just send them a text and here's the, here's the passage I'm preaching. Y'all do something with this and let me know what you think about it. Then I'll have to say, don't look at anything else. Just read the Bible and send me back your thoughts on this passage. And uh, sometimes I'll get them Friday. So I got one this morning before I came in. I was like, well, this is late. It's not helping me a bit. <laughs> one of those young guys... <laughs> A couple of them hit it just right with this verse and saw this template of the gospel. Join me there. Let's walk through it. Verse 30, the mother-in-law is down. The mother-in-law is down with a fever. In the same way, we are fallen in our sin. And yet we are not sick with sin. The Bible says we are dead in sin. That we are not going to recover from this sickness. Is a picture of our situation, our sinful condition. Verse 29, if you go up the page, we're told that, that, that people that loved this woman are telling Jesus about her. There's somebody interceding for this sick person. In the same way, the lost people that you know need you praying for them. Because only Jesus can save them. Verse 31 tells us that Jesus came to her. Here is the picture of grace. She didn't get up and come to him. She was incapacitated. She's sick, not us. We were dead. It's not that if you'll take the first step, Jesus will meet you. When you're dead in sin, you don't take the first step. Jesus takes all the steps. He came to her. Here's a picture of grace. And as Christ has come to us, when we were dead and lost and estranged from God, there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. The text says Jesus took her by the hand. In the same way, Jesus has initiated 
Jesus has shown love to us. Isn't that what John said? First John? That we love God because He first loved us. The text says in verse 31 that He lifted her up. Here's the heart of the gospel. Let's just pause and get the gospel. He lifted her up. Uh, some versions say He raised her up. That's the, I think that's the better translation. In fact, it makes it into the, the phraseology we use in our own baptism here. Bared with Him in baptism. Raised. It's the same word. Why do we say that that's the heart of the gospel? Let's give the gospel in an abbreviated form. The gospel, according to the Bible, is that God is the holy creator who created all of us in His image. You have dignity because you are made in the image of God. The image of God in each one of us is good, but it's been disfigured by sin. It's been covered, mangled by our own sin. Not just action. Sins are not just the things that you do that are bad. Sin is, is who we are. We're born with this nature. We got it from our first parents, Adam and Eve. That sin has separated us from God and not only separated us, but made it so that we have offended a holy God and broken His just laws. That offense deserves punishment. The wages of sin is death. God is a just judge. He must punish sin. If everyone is a sinner, then all of that sin must be punished. We stand under condemnation. That's the bad news. The good news is what the Christian gospel is, that Jesus comes. You see, God is not just a judge. He also loves. God loves us to the degree that He sacrificially gives His own Son, Jesus, who is fully God, fully man. Mark, I mean, this is the start of the gospel. Mark is telling us, here's Jesus. And we're going to follow along as we see Jesus fulfill and keep every law, all the laws of God, thereby earning righteousness, you see, when Jesus goes to the cross, He is taking the wrath of God, the punishment of God, and gives sinners His righteousness. So, so, so if you put your faith in Jesus, you're not just forgiven of your sin and it wiped away. You are forgiven of your sin and it's wiped away. You also have the character and the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus put on you so that you are seen. In the perfection of Jesus. And we have been raised with Christ. The text says that, verse 31, that the fever left her. He takes our sin. He forgives our sin. He removes our sin. And the text says that when she was healed, verse 31, that she began to serve. You understand that, that a changed life has one goal. That one goal is to actually serve the living Lord Jesus. Is that you? Is, is your life lived in joyful service to God? I want you to run today. I want you to run and rejoice in the clear compassion of Jesus. Something else I want you to rejoice in. Is the second part of this passage. It begins in verse 32. I want you to rejoice in the powerful patience of Jesus. Verse 32 begins this striking and impressive scene. It's a great scene in verse 32. We, we are told that this is after a long day of ministry. Now remember, remember where we are. Verse 21 started in the morning at the synagogue. All those things happened 
Demons were cast out. Verse 29, we pick up, they're leaving the synagogue. They get to Simon Peter's house. Simon Peter lives there with his brother Andrew, Simon Peter's wife, who knows the children, his mother-in-law. A lot of people living in his house. Find the mother-in-law sick. Jesus heals her. She gets up and serves them. They have a meal near the end of the day. When the Sabbath day is coming to a close, people can move around again. You see, the Sabbath had them restricted. They can move around again, and look what happens in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door. What a picture. That's not what you want after a hard day of ministry. I'm sure they want to be left alone. We're going to come to the next passage. Jesus is going to go off to be left alone. And yet, because he did what he did at the synagogue, the fame, verse 28 told, they're just spreading everywhere. Everybody knows who he is. They know that he can heal. The Sabbath day is now coming to a close. They can finally walk around, and they show up at the door. Somebody hears some commotion out there. I don't know who it was. One of them goes to the door and opens it up. And out in the yard, all these demon-possessed people, sick and lepers, I mean, all, it's like you walked into the DMV or something. <laughs> Looking out in the yard, and in turn, Jesus, they're here to see you. Now, when you read this, when you read this, <clears throat> what you see is, Luke tells us the same thing. He just expands, that Jesus heals everybody. Verse 32 and 33 and 34. The whole city was gathered together, verse 33, at the door. He healed many who were sick, various diseases, and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's first take a look at the healing, just very quickly. Take a look at the healing and then end with him casting out the demons once again as Jesus forbids them to speak. Verse 33 and 34, Jesus healed everybody in the yard. He healed with a word or with a touch. He healed instantly and totally. This is not like a Benny Hinn healing. He healed everybody. He healed everybody that showed up. He healed them and didn't require their faith for him to do it. Over 90 times in the Gospels, we have over 90 texts where Jesus is healing people and every single one of them is a foreshadowing and a confirmation of the power of Jesus to save. But this story has something else in it of, 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 of interest to me. It's in verse 34. At the very end, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out demons and would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Repeatedly, it's the second time he's done this. Why is it Jesus? I mean, you would think that you'd want to hear him say it. Why did Jesus repeatedly stop the demons from speaking? They, knew, they obviously know who he is. They know who he is better than the people know. I think that John MacArthur has really good insight on this. MacArthur says that the most dangerous form of religion is that which affirms Jesus 
but teaches lies. The most dangerous form of Christianity is that which would affirm Jesus but teach lies. Look, we need to be careful how we talk about the culture and how we talk about people, how we talk about a lost world. Lost people are not our problem. They're our mission field. Atheists are not our problem. Our problem is those that would affirm Jesus but not teach rightly. Jesus, when he came into Simon's house, he didn't rebuke his mother-in-law who was sick. He healed her. Who did he rebuke? He rebuked those who would affirm him, the, the demons would affirm him, and yet still be demonic. I think the same is true in our day. I think our biggest danger in the Christian church are false gospels that will affirm Jesus and teach lies. There's several of them. I can think of at least four. There's the legalistic gospel. The legalistic gospel tells you these are the things that you must do to be a Christian. That is not grace. That's legalism. We have been saved from that. You don't do things to become a Christian. You do things because you are a Christian. Because God has made you into a Christian. There's a legalistic gospel. There's the, there's the prosperity gospel. Man, do I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate it. I hate it because it's such a deception. It's such a heartbreak. When we, when we, when we set Jesus up as that one that might get you some things. There's some things that you might get and your breakthrough is just around the corner. It might not be. What's around the corner might be a terrible disaster. It's going to break your heart. You don't need that prosperity gospel falls apart in the face of disaster. There's also the, the, the progressive gospel. It's insidious. It, it seeps in because it sounds right because you want to help. The progressive gospel is, is continually moving the boundary away from that which is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. This is where Orthodox Christianity is always threatened by the progressive gospel because the culture keeps drifting and moving. If you're not careful and not, not tied completely to God's word, you move with it. What we don't recognize, but it has been the truth in a whole lot of churches, is the permissive gospel. The permissive gospel says that, look, once saved, always saved, and from that point on, you live like you want. This has practical implications even, even for us. People join the church and be baptized, uh, have their name on a roll, and never, never participate in the body of believers, never actually invest their lives, and will feel secure. This is the, being inoculated with the gospel. It's a deadly thing. We'll feel secure because they actually joined the church at some time and just have strayed when really all it meant was that your name was on a roll but your soul was not saved. None of these, none of these are the gospel of Jesus. They're all the gospel of Satan. The gospel of Jesus is free and open and given and available and presented 
The gospel of Jesus recognizes that we are sinners alienated from God. The gospel of Jesus says that anybody who turns, anybody, and puts your faith in what Jesus has done for you will be saved. This passage right here lifts up the compassionate, powerful Jesus. Jesus himself said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Friend, I want you to run to this Jesus. This Jesus is a compassionate, patient Savior. Will receive you and change you, wash you and forgive you. I want you to rejoice in his compassion. Rejoice in his powerful patience. Join me as we pray. Your head bowed this morning as we go to the Lord. In a moment of prayer and confession, we're going to keep singing. Worship will continue. But when we sing, this might be a good time for you to pray for someone. Maybe it's you. Maybe you need to talk to a pastor. When we sing, our pastors will be down front. If you'd like to come and talk to a pastor, certainly is a great time to do that. If not, our pastors will be in the lobby afterward, always waiting to talk to any of you that want to talk about putting your faith in Jesus or praying for someone you know needs Jesus. We want you to see the compassionate, powerfully patient Jesus. Father, thank you for the word that is good, for your love that is real. Thank you for the grace that we have in Christ. I pray that the gospel would be made real to men and women today. I pray that your church, your church would rejoice in how good you are. Help your people today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.